Lou, and welcome to Stories in Public Health. You're here today, as always, uh, with myself, Emily, um, who is travelling around Sydney interviewing um, people I look up to in public health. Uh, we're not with Chow today, so we won't have a phone ringing in the middle of the interview, hopefully. Um, and today I'm really excited. We're um, interviewing uh, Dr. Anita Haywood, and it's actually quite topical because... Um, Anita works here at UNSW just across the hall from me and we've just been to a seminar um, over at the Kirby Institute which was the UNSW Grand Challenge on Refugee and Migrants um, and it was really inspirational. Um, I was really impressed with all the speakers. It's one of the great things about working in academia. You can go to these amazing talks sometimes. Um, and Anita's area of interest is really closely related to that. Um, so she specialises in vaccines and in particular in travellers and migrants. Um, so we're going to probably have a bit of a focus on that today and maybe touch on some of the things that we just heard about in the seminar. Uh, so Anita is the Director of Public Health Programs here at the School of Public Health and Community Medicine. So she has a lot of interactions with the students and she does a lot of teaching. Um, and she did a PhD here at UNSW. And she's also a rising star, even though she doesn't like to admit that. Uh, so she won the Rising Star Award from the faculty in 2012. And just last week, I think it was Anita, mm-hmm. uh, won, <coughs> excuse me, won a Dean's Award for um, for academic significant contribution um, to UNSW medicine. So thank you for joining us today, Anita. <laughs> thank you, Emily. <laughs> uh, so as we discussed earlier, we might start with perhaps a favourite story or a favourite project that you've worked on in your career to date. Um, yes, so I suppose keeping on the topic of today's seminar, so yeah, my area of interest is in immunisation um, my PhD was on traveller immunisation um, and in my PhD, just looking at travellers in general from Australia, particularly to Asia, found that migrants were far less likely to seek pre, um, pre-travel healthcare and were less likely to be vaccinated than um, other Australians. Um, and so that sort of became the focus of my work to look at this higher risk group um, and so some of the work I've recently been doing is part of an ARC grant um, which if is you looking can, yeah sorry I was just got to ARC. say ARC <laughs> grant for those who don't know is the Australian Research Council yeah um, so it's a discovery project grant which finishes up this year looking at travellers visiting friends and relatives so migrants returning home to their country of birth or their parents country of birth um, and that's been the focus of my research for the last few years um, so part of that um, and a significant Um, contribution is a paper that's been recently published in epidemiology and infection looking at it was an enhanced surveillance study that we did with New South Wales Health and the Victorian Department of Health um, and that was calling up people who had been diagnosed with or notified um, with typhoid, uh, hepatitis A and a range of other diseases and looking at who they were, what were their travel patterns, what was their pre-travel health seeking and um, we found that the majority were migrants or their children. Um, so up to like 97% of the typhoid cases were migrants or their children. Um, so that really sort of sh- highlights and really um, demonstrates this, you know, this higher risk group. Yeah, and is there any re- like have you done any research into the reasons why they they're not getting vaccinated, or is it just at the moment we know that they're not? There's a whole lot of reasons. So a lot of the barriers are um, not knowing that they're at risk, or that whole I'm going home. You know, yeah. I grew up there. You know, why you know why do I need to see a doctor before I go home? Um, but also things like language barriers, and and um, when they go to a GP, the GP not um, not knowing that they're at higher risk or not you know not being able to. Um, communicate that risk to them Um, so a whole range of factors yeah and how did you come to study that in your PhD was that an area of interest for you or did you meet someone who said this is a great thing to study 
Um, that's quite a funny story of how I fell into <laughs> academia, I suppose. Um, I started working at the National Centre for Immunisation Research and Surveillance out at the Children's Hospital yep. at Westmead back in 2006, the year after I finished my Master of Public Health. Um, and I was working in um, immunisation policy um, on for the Australian Technical Advisory technical advisory group on immunization um, and my desk in the open plan area was right outside the office of professor Ryan mcintyre <laughs> who used to walk past my desk going come and do a phd with me every every couple of days come and I do a phd with that. me um, and so eventually she wore me down and i walked into her office and said Ryder, i've been thinking about doing a phd and she just smiled <laughs> and said have you now and i sat, <laughs> sat down and we discussed what i was interested in and and what ideas would that she had would fit with my my research interests yeah. Um, and so that's really how I sort of fell into it. At the time, she had another um, Australian Research Council Discovery Project grant around travel patterns. Yeah. And so my I was lucky to sort of have my my PhD work funded through that ARC grant. Oh, fantastic! And for those who don't know, uh, Raina McIntyre is the head, head of, of head the of school <laughs> head of school here, um, and she has a lot of content knowledge and a lot of experience in in vaccines. So I can see how that fit in really well. Yeah. <laughs> and so, how did you find doing your PhD? Did you fall in love with academia instantly, or did it frustrate you, or both? Um, both, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, so at the time, I was also kept up one day a week work out at the National Centre for Immunisation Research yeah. and my PhD was initially based out there until we moved to UNSW. So it was really tricky to section off time for a PhD that wasn't due in three years to yeah. policy work that was had you know rapid deadlines and things like that. So I did initially, well, probably all the way through, struggle with, yeah, <laughs> um, with deadlines and prioritising and, um, and I think that that's probably something that everyone in academia has to kind of deal with how do you prioritize the important things or the long-term goals when you've got so much going on that's immediate yeah so. that's something I usually struggle with because yeah especially sitting down and writing something for a block of time that you really need to block something out and it's so easy to just quickly send an email back so it's that getting those blocks yep. of time yes yeah and I fall into bad habits and then I have to remind myself no you have to section off time and put it in your diary so this is my writing time or oh, this is my I'm so glad to hear that everyone has bad habits because I always walk past Anita's office and she always looks so studious <laughs> so I'm glad she does it too and so what kind of work were you doing out at NCIS? Uh So it was for um, ATAGI, so the Australian Technical Advisor Group on Immunisation. Um, so they provide advice to the PBAC, the Pharmaceutical Benefits Advisory Com um, Committee, on new vaccine um, submissions to go on our national immunisation program. Yep. So NCIS, um is creates the working party, so we write the technical reports for ATAGI that, yeah. um, that help provide that advice. Um, so it was great straight from my PhD, or straight from my master's in public health to go into this hugely policy-driven role, but having to write huge literature reviews on disease epidemiology, um, looking at vaccine effectiveness and efficacy and safety, um, and sort of working out or re recommending um, you know, which age groups we should be vaccinating and a whole range of other things. So yeah, but that's really interesting as well because then you straight out of your master's, you also get to see like an actual, like the effect, flow on effect to actual policy. Like that's a really, uh, some policies aren't so sort of direct or you can't see the direct effects. Like yeah, that. some of them were really quick turnarounds. I think yeah. the first um, one that I worked, the first working party that I worked on when I started was on the HPV vaccine. Oh, wow. And that's had huge effects. Yeah, yeah. So that was, and I, like, my first one was on a chapter on other human papillomaviruses. So nothing to do with them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> 
But, um, like, but yeah, so that was just one part of that chapter. But um, yeah, obviously it was a huge learning curve in terms of what was required in health policy and how to write really succinctly. Um, I still and struggle How to summarise <laughs> a whole lot of data into something that can be read by policymakers. Yeah, that's an interesting question. And sorry, this isn't really necessarily with your work. It's more of a general academic thing. And it's, I'm probably just asking everyone, sorry, personalising this, uh, because I struggle with it is about writing with precision and also just struggling with the writing process. Like, do you have any advice for people that, you know, I know there's some people that just comes really natural to, but I'm not one of those people. So is it something that you just keep plodding along with and you get better over time? Yeah, I think so. And I think you've got to um, not be upset by um, feedback from, you know, your, you know, your managers or whoever's um, <laughs> or your supervisors <laughs> or whoever's giving feedback. And if they go and rewrite a part of your, um, you know, whole paragraph, you sort of work out, well, why did they do that? So and sometimes <laughs> it's nuances of how they like to say things compared yeah. to you. So it's a personal thing, but you've got to look at, say, well, actually they've, You've, they're saying exactly the same thing, but in three sentences instead of ten. Yeah. And so, in terms of you know health policy, that's important. So I think Anita was laughing then, everyone, because she knows that I'm really terrible at that <laughs> and personalised. So that's definitely something that I yeah I could work on. So just taking on the feedback and putting it into the like the next draft as well. Yeah, yeah, and don't, but yeah, there's a there's a limit. You don't want to have your whole thesis rewritten and pulled apart. Yeah. But you know, um, taking feedback and saying how am I going? What's my writing? Because often you tend to say things like write in the passive voice, so you take too long to say something because yeah. you're being too passive. Or um, and so you've got to learn to sort of make sure you hone in your writing skills. Yeah. Um, and just, I'm going to jump around a little bit now. Um, what keeps you going in academia now? Like, what's your favourite part? And well, maybe after that, we'll talk about teaching. Um, well, I suppose, you know, I've got a, a three roles now in that I still, I'm doing re- research. I teach into two courses in the Master of Public Health program. And I've got the Director of Public Health role, which so oversees um, the program, but also... Um, student enrolments all the way through to um, when they finish. So, oh, I didn't know you did um, all that. So, in s- that role. student, yeah. So, student advice, um, and um, that's yeah. So, that's a major part of the role. Um, so, in terms of what's driving me yeah. now, I suppose there's different things. So, still the research really drives me, and you know, it's always exciting to get a paper published. But actually, the getting the, you know every stage, getting the grant, getting the study implemented, collecting the data, you've got to take excitement or interest from every stage. Um, And then I really love working with the students here at the university in terms of there's people from such a wealth of different backgrounds, um, from the whole lot of different countries. And it's, um, you know, people who have had far more public health experience than I have in different areas. So it's really interesting to see um, you know, see them come in here and see where they go in the future. Yeah, that's actually one of my favourite things about um, doing my PhD here at the school. There's just such diversity of people and, you know, one day you might be talking to someone from Nigeria or the next, you know, day it's someone who worked in Pakistan for WHO. It's so interesting to learn from everyone. Um, so we'll come back to teaching, but I just wanted to touch on the data analysis. Like what's been – data analysis, sorry, data collection. What's been – like one of your favourite things that you've done data collection for? Um, do you usually use surveys or have you done interviews? Uh, yeah, so most of my research is quantitative. So it's um, I've done a lot of cross-sectional studies with travellers. Yeah. Um, so probably the hardest or the biggest learning curve were 
the cross-sectional studies I did at Sydney Airport and that at Bangkok Airport uh, as part of my PhD. So that was exciting that I got to go to Thailand a few times to um, interview travellers returning from Thailand to Australia. So was it a paper um, based you at the airport giving them? Yeah, yeah. So I had a um, – I at the time I was – my PhD was at Sydney Uni before I moved it over to UNSW. Yeah. So I had a team of um, undergrad students from, um, from Sydney Uni who were all bilingual. So they helped with cool. – um, collecting data from travellers travelling to China and Vietnam and a whole range of other countries. Um, and so we kind of ran around the airport with um, clipboards, <laughs> getting people to, to take part in, st- in surveys. Oh, so. that's so fun. And was it hard? Like, did a lot of people say no? Um, actually, people, well, we had a captive audience because they were waiting in the long queues to ah. line up. <laughs> so <laughs> we kind of – so not yeah, not, some people obviously did, but, yeah, we had people who were really quite interested in – um, in the study yeah. so they'd you know they'd check in and then they'd come back and finish the survey for us if they'd if they'd got to check oh, in before and so how yeah. come you got to go over to Thailand did you say for that uh so that was um we were looking at people traveling departing Australia for other countries in Southeast Asia um and but also we went over to Thailand to look at people returning to Australia and we looked at their sort of whether that had been ill um during their t- time when they were traveling and um yeah so a whole we collected from both both, both directions. Oh, mm. see, this is why I love this podcast because I sit right near Anita and I s- never knew that. <laughs> yeah. So what do you think was the biggest learning curve about that? Just learning to talk to people or were there different things that you did at the end of the survey than at the beginning? The the time, I suppose the preparation, how important the preparation time is. Yeah. So developing that questionnaire, really piloting it and making sure that it does work. Um, and that when, you know, there was one or two questions in my PhD survey that I went, oh, hang on, I didn't ask that right. What does that actually oh. mean? And so really, you know, that the value of piloting and um, making sure you've got a, a you know, a, a good questionnaire. Yeah, I think that's so important. I um, Sorry, we're just checking the time. Chow's not here today, so I'm trying to multitask. It's not a great skill of mine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you hear all the, when I first started by Masters, people used to say that all the time that, you know, you don't want to get to the end of your data collection and there's a question that you haven't asked or – so I think that is hugely important. But it's good to know, like, hear of an actual example of that happening. Yeah, that preparation time is so important. And you, you, you really want to rush and get things into ethics and yeah. get started as soon as you can. But really the time taken um, to, you know, particularly if it's a PhD or any, any project – the time taken to do the literature review, review what's already out there, review what questions still need to be asked, and then make sure you're using a validated, you know, questionnaire or questions that are validated. Yeah, that's really good advice. Yeah, um, and so <laughs> no problem. <laughs> um, and so moving on to teaching, what's your uh, obviously get to you know learn from, you know, students from a wide variety of backgrounds. What's probably the most maybe challenging part of that, or um, what's something that a lot of students like? Is there a common theme that comes across that students come to you with? Um, I suppose, well, I teach the epidemiology and statistics course, which is yeah. a core course for the MPH and the MIPH here at the, um, at the school. So the Masters of International Public Health. Yeah. Um, and so I, I suppose th- speaking to students there, a lot of them don't end up doing the course until later in, later in their program, um, because they're a bit scared of statistics and they think that they can just leave yeah. it till last. Um, and they often say at the end, I wish I'd done this at the beginning because it just gives you this basis on which to, 
you to read critically appraised papers, yeah. which you need for all your other courses, um, and a little bit, and an understanding of statistics or how what results mean when you're reading reading a paper that you can you know you should really be starting off with with the core course yeah, at the beginning. And so that's it's that fear of statistics that drives people to do it later. Um, when really they should be doing it first. Yeah, we touched on that the other day actually with Jeremy McAnulty and when we interviewed him um, and he was saying, we are both saying it's, just, it's a good grounding because even if you don't, like when you do epidemiology, even if you don't come out of it as an epidemiologist but then you can actually read papers and understand what other people have done even if you just know what an odds ratio is, it's really helpful. Yep, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah and often with students in the epidemiology and statistics course come in with a fear of statistics and then they realise that actually it's epidemiology that is harder than statistics because it's so nuanced when you're trying to work out what you know, particular selection biases in a study or how have they measured um, the study factor and are there any biases in that? That's so nuanced. Whereas statistics is, you know, you plug it in and you get the answer. You know, yeah. So it's a lot more um, black and white than than epidemiology is. So they end up finding the epidemiology harder towards the end. So it's a learning curve for all the students. <laughs> um, I'm just trying to think of what to go on to next. Um, oh, so I was going to say, um, I was going to ask this this way. Sorry, let me just restart that, everyone. <laughs> that was really bad. I was going to say, what do you think has been your the best thing that you've done in your career like for you? Because I know everyone's experience when they get into public health or academia is different. But is there some sort of decision that you made, like whether it was, you know, choosing your PhD based on supervisor or, you know, going into an area that interests you? What's been the biggest thing for you that you think has been giving you the best outcomes in your career? Um, oh, there's lots of... Things, I I'll think. let well, you one have two. <laughs> <laughs> or have, choosing the right P, uh, PhD supervisor is vital because yeah. you need to have someone who's supportive and who doesn't just um, help you through your PhD project itself but gives that opens doors to other opportunities as well. So that's really important. Um, but I suppose one thing in terms of my career post-PhD is that I always had trouble saying no to things and people mm. would say, would you like to be part of this project or can you take on this or can you take on that? And I'd be like, yes, 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 and didn't know how to say no and realised that you know, I wasn't getting my own papers published or yeah. I wasn't putting in my own you know, grants or whatever. Um, and so learning how to say no or um, was it's still hard, but really having a kind of plan in place of, well, this is my five-year plan or this is the direction I want to go in in terms of career progression so that when someone says, can you do this, you can say, well, actually, no, it doesn't fit with my progression. And mm. it makes it easier for yourself to say no, but it actually makes it easier for the person to accept that you've said no to them. Because then you've got a reason behind <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So you've still got to do, you know, do things you know, that you might not like in terms of like teaching load or marking and things like that but it definitely gives you a a a bit more of guidance for yourself in in where you want to go so that's been really helpful that's really great i can't believe you haven't told me that before you've been holding (laughs) it on me (laughs) i'm gonna do that when i get go go away from here um and i just sort of one other thing i want to ask you before the final question is that you're involved with the franklin women's association association is that Uh, network network um could you maybe just give people because i think that's just a really great organization a little bit of background what you do for them and what they're trying to do uh, yes, so it's Franklin Women. Um, you can look it up on their website. Um, and it was started by a colleague of mine from NCS, Melina Georgiasakis, who um, felt that there was sort of a need to, to network um, within people with well, women within health and medical research. Yeah. Um, and so she started up this network about two years ago now, and I'm on her advisory committee with um, a few other fellow um, 
Franklin Women members. Um, and we run a lot of different events. Um, we have a blog. Uh, Melina's very active on Twitter and other social media. Um, and, yeah, we just use it as a sort of way of, of bringing women together. Um, and we've just um, developing now, which we'll launch in 2017, is this mentoring, cross-institutional mentoring program. Oh, I have heard about that. Um, where we're looking at getting mentor and mentee pairs from different universities and research institutes um, and then you know mixing it all up and so a mentor will go to another institute with that mentee um, and oh that's um, great how are you recruiting people oh uh, we haven't decided on that yet oh, but watch this space <laughs> oh that's fantastic yeah so in that way you know the the mentor gets to speak to someone in senior in this um, more senior in the institute and then also the mentee um, whether they're male or female gets to see what um, a bit better what it's like for a woman at a sort of mid-career level so yeah. um, on, you know, in terms of getting ahead in, in academic research so hopefully it's got a double effect. Oh that sounds fantastic I'm definitely going to watch this space I have people I can recommend yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then just our final question which um, we sort of talked about a bit earlier is do you have a favourite like public health type book or podcast or somewhere where you that go to read that inspires you? Um I was trying to, uh, you were going to ask me this question. Yeah. I was trying to think of <laughs> She was um, stressing about it before the interview. <laughs> um, God, this, yeah, how do I don't have time to read. Cause <laughs> but I have listened to recently um, a couple of podcasts from John uh, Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. Oh, yeah, you And they do some podcasts from uh, mostly American people working in public health, but sort of like Radio National. It's a recorded um, interview, but they go for about an I think they go for about half an hour to an hour, um, but really prominent people in the US. Okay. So yeah. that's quite interesting. Excellent. And then I always like my non my non work <laughs> chats ten looks through. <laughs> I knew she was going to try and get it in. <laughs> She's been telling me about this podcast with Annabelle Crum and Lisa. <laughs> that's my bit of non work on the way to work. Whenever they put a podcast out, they're a bit sporadic. Yeah, I have heard. I have heard that podcast as well. It's really good. Yeah. Obviously, not as good as this one. <laughs> Sorry, I'm joking. <laughs> Um, all right, well, um, and just before we go, this isn't a question, but just from the seminar before, I just wanted to give a quick shout out. We saw at the very end um, a lady called Madeline Gleason, who's a, a um, researcher here at the University in Law, and she's put out a book, and I probably shouldn't give it a shout out because I haven't actually read it yet, but I just wanted to let people know it sounded amazing because I'm going to go and read it. Um, and it's called Offshore, um, Behind the Wire on Nauru and Manus. And she's uh, it's a really great speaker and really inspirational. So um, if anyone else is interested, um, I guess, in, you know, uh, what's going on in Australia um, with our sort of asylum seeking policies, that might be a good place to start reading. I'm going to start this weekend. <laughs> uh, so thank you very much for joining us, Anita. Pleasure. I know you're very Thanks busy. for inviting me. No problem. And, um, yeah, we'll talk to everyone next time. Thanks a lot. <laughs>